stand as you are able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 10. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Purah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the banks of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Lynn, for reading our lesson, and it is a great joy to be with you all in worship, uh, to be with each of you, especially to be with Muller Edmonds' family, and to celebrate his inclusion into the kingdom today is a special thing. Jonathan, thank you for your prayer, and Ryan, Greg, Patsy for leading us as well. I really, really appreciated the prelude this morning. Uh, that was a beautiful, beautiful uh, testimony to our faith. And it's, it's not lost on me that the scripture reader today that you just heard read, uh, the scripture is OBGYN doctor reading about midwives, uh, which is very, very interesting. Uh, we didn't plan that. That's a God sighting, by the way. Uh, and also, just a, a moment uh, to celebrate the United Women in Faith, uh, Dr. Jane Roach. Uh, we're so grateful for her leadership to Pat and Lori and others who were such a significant part of that ministry. We're grateful to both of you. 
Well, we're continuing our series that we started a week ago on deliverance with another reading, pretty lengthy reading, from the book of Exodus. You may not know that the word Exodus actually comes from the Greek term exosia, which literally means departure, which telegraphs the theme of the book. It's all about the departure of Hebrew slaves from Egyptian bondage. But it's named exosia in the Greek text, which was a translation of the Hebrew text in what we call the Pentateuch. But the original title of this second book in the Torah was the Shemot. Say that with me, Shemot, which literally in the Hebrew language means names. Our Jewish friends, our Hebrew forebearers, call this book the book of names because of the title verse that we read last week, Exodus 1.1, which says, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, and then it goes through the litany of the 12 sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and of course, Joseph, who was already in Egypt. The book of names. Now, it's similar in the first book of the Torah, which we call the book of Genesis, but our Jewish forebears refer to this book as the book of Bereshit, which is the Hebrew term for beginning, which is also the title verse, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God began creating the heavens and the earth. And the original Hebrew says God began creating, which means that God isn't finished with creation yet. But the second book of the Torah is the book of names, Shemot. And the idea, the notion is, it's the names in this book that actually tell the story of deliverance. And we started last week, if you'll recall, with Exodus 1 verse 8 of a forgetful leader. Now, there arose a new king in Egypt who did not remember the name Joseph a pretty important name to Egypt. He saved the region from the famine. But what we talked about is the fact that earthly leaders and rulers often forget the names of those who don't fit their narrative, or perhaps they delete them from the record entirely. But Hebrews, the Hebrews scripture tells us that God never forgets our names. And that's the beginning of deliverance, the memory of God. God remembers his own. In the Hebrew perspective, names are not just labels, like Ryan and Greg, that, that's a designation, Joanne, but it's more than a label. In the Hebrew psyche, names contain character, identity, meaning, purpose, destiny. For example, this morning we read the name Moses which literally means drawn out of the water. And so whenever the Hebrews, whenever we hear the name Moses, it tells the story of the departure. The meaning is in his name. And so it's more than a label, it's a, it's a vocation, if you will. It's in the name. I've been doing some research this week in preparation for today. And uh, Jonathan, do you know what your name means? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> God has given. God is a gift. Uh, and so Jonathan is a gift. Uh, Casey, Casey's with us. Her, you, you know your name? Yeah, it's vigilant. 
It's watchful. You are well named. Adam, Adam Jones, it means earthy, grounded. Adam is the Hebrew form. Jim, James, which is the form of Jacob, means substitute. Ani, Ani is the medieval capital city of Armenia, which if you know Ani, that's appropriate because her background is Armenian. Dominic means Lord. So you might want to bow when you see Dominic coming. <laughs> the, name, the meaning of my name, Davis, which is a derivative of David, beloved. <laughs> All I can say is shucks, fellas. So while the new Pharaoh forgets, he's not good with names, God is awfully good with names. He never forgets the name. We talked last week about the peril of leaders who are ignorant of their own history. That's a lethal thing. George Santayana, the 20th century philosopher from Spain, said it like this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this was a pharaoh that had a bad case of historical amnesia, which actually led to the marginalization of an entire race of people. So as the Hebrews who started out numbering 70 grow in number, the king becomes fearful and insecure, and fearfulness and insecurity lead to paranoia, lead to oppression, enslavement, and eventually to genocide. In fact, in, Acts, excuse me, in Exodus 1.16, the Pharaoh actually institutes a policy, if you can believe it, of ethnic cleansing. So all the male children born to Hebrew parents are going to be executed, which seems to me to be counterintuitive to a ruler who's depending on the Hebrew slave labor. But he's going to let the girls live. He's going to kill the baby boys. And there's nothing you can do about it because his decree... His edict is law. And the worst thing about this story to me is that the one in power, the one Pharaoh, employs women to do the dirty work and perhaps Hebrew slaves, two of which are mentioned in our text, Shipra and Pua. It's ironic to me that the specific name of Pharaoh in Exodus is never mentioned. We don't know. Was it Ramses I or second? Was it Tutmos? We don't know. Because in the scriptures, it isn't the rich and famous who get the top billing. It's the marginalized. It's, it's the female slaves. It's Shipra, whose name means one who does good, and Pua, one who hears the cries. That's who gets top billing. And that's just like God. In the kingdom of God, it is never position and power that win the day. It's compassion. It's mercy. And so what we have here is a group of relegated, marginalized women who are now resisting Pharaoh's policy and thus are contributing to the deliverance of God. And it all starts with an act of civil disobedience. In chapter 117, you see the reason, you see their rationale for their noncompliance. What is it? Here it is. But the midwives feared God, so they did not do as the king 
commanded. In other words, what that means to us is when the law of the land clashes with the Spirit of God, what do you do? You go with God. It's interesting that years later, according to Mark 12, Jesus was asked a trick question by the Pharisees about paying taxes. Should we pay taxes or not? We're religious people. We honor God. We don't want to honor the image of Caesar on the coin. What should we do? And Jesus, who was never one to be painted into a corner, he didn't give, he didn't give flat answers, either or answers. He said, look, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. But what do you do when Caesar and God are in conflict? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what Shepard and Pua did. They went with God. At great risk to themselves, they refused the order to harm defenseless children in order to save their own necks. They defied the Pharaoh. While I was away, I read a book by John Meacham. Many of you know John Meacham. He's a Nashvilleian now. He lives in Belmede. He teaches sometimes at Vanderbilt University. He's a historian and a, and a mighty good one. And he wrote a book about John Lewis, who Sherry and I were in Atlanta for 31 year, years, knew of John Lewis, former congressman in Georgia, civil rights leader, but what we, we didn't remember is that Lewis was actually a student in Nashville. He moved here in 1957 at the age of 17 to go to seminary at American Baptist College over in North Nashville off Rosa Parks. And he came and participated in 59 and 60 in those lunch counter sit-ins. In other words, he defied the Jim Crow law. He defied segregation by eating lunch at Harvey's and Kane Sloan. Now, you have to be over 50 to know what I'm talking about at this point. But I mean, these were department stores that were right next to the church that I grew up in. I had no idea when I was nine years of age in 1969 that eight years before that had happened across the street from the church. He was often mistreated and beaten for his noncompliance but he never responded in kind because of his faith in Jesus. He never did. He'd been raised in a little Baptist church near Troy, Alabama. He wanted to be a preacher as a boy. He said he used to preach to the chickens. Didn't have many conversions, but there in Troy, get this, the third of 10 children born to sharecroppers, poor sharecroppers, but parents who were devout in their faith. And he came to Nashville, and when he got here, he was mentored by a Methodist preacher whose name was James Lawson. And Brother James taught John and others the biblical concept of nonviolent resistance. And Lewis learned that in the basement of Clark Memorial Methodist Church where our own toy king is the senior pastor. And Lawson learned it from two midwives in the book of names who feared God more than the Pharaoh. 
when the rule of law conflicts with the sanctity of life, civil disobedience is warranted, says the scripture. Augustine said it too, St. Augustine, 5th century, an unjust law is no law at all. You need some scripture? Isaiah 10, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, saith the Lord. So it doesn't happen very much, but every now and then when somebody says, you know, just, just preach the Bible and stay away from politics, I wonder if we're reading the same Bible. For these women, it's not politics that shape their faith. It's faith that shapes their politics. And that's the very reason I think that Bible study is so critical. Some clergy and some of us laity spend more time reading the newspaper than we do the Bible. We spend more time in social media than we do in scripture. And Karl Barth, the German theologian who stood up against the Third Reich was right when he said, we must hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Or Shane Claiborne, Eastern Tennessee prophet said, our faith should never cause us to escape the world but to engage the world. Now, please understand, these women didn't go burn down the palace, okay? They didn't put a contract on Pharaoh's head. They simply refused to keep his policy because they revered God more than Pharaoh. Now, there's some humor in this text, and I don't know about you, but I have some wonderful Jewish friends. I love Jewish humor, and it's all over this text. In fact, Lynn, when you were reading, I heard some people kind of snickering. When Pharaoh hears that these ladies have disobeyed the law, he has a come to Jesus meeting with them, and he asks them the good question, why have you women refused to kill these boys? Why have you allowed them to live? And I love their response, verse 19, because they said, the Hebrew girls are not like your Egyptian girls. They're tough. They're vigorous. In fact, by the time we get there, they've already given birth. In other words, labor and delivery for Hebrews happens in a New York minute. I mean, it's two minutes of pushing and breathing and there comes the baby. Now, there's a name for this, and my Jewish friends would agree. This is called Hebrew hyperbole. This is exaggeration, but these women are wives. I'll tell you why. If they had gone to see the king and said, well, we disobeyed your law because it's just unjust. It's unfair. It's inequitable. And we don't appreciate it. They'd have been burned at the stake. But when they say, Pharaoh... We tried to do what you said, but they beat us to the punch. What's a Pharaoh to do? These are smart women. It reminds me of something Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10 when he sent them out into the world and he said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so it's important that you become as wise as a snake and as gentle as a dove. There's wisdom in their response. There's also some humor. It's just a bit of humor in chapter 2, 
where Jochebed, the mother of Moses, after hiding her baby boy for three months, what does she do? She puts him in a little basket made with some of the same materials that were used for the baking of bricks for the slaves, and she pushes him into the Nile River, which is the sign of life. So she's actually keeping Pharaoh's law. Pharaoh said, take the babies to the river, but he didn't say anything about baskets. And so Jochebed, from her vacation synagogue school days, knows how to make a little basket and puts her boy in a little ark and sends Miriam, Moses' big sister, out to keep an eye on the boat and the wind begins to blow and the current shifts the little basket over into the cove where the princess takes her bath. And she sees the baby and she hears the cry and she reels him in And Miriam, who just happens to be walking the family dog by the cove, suggests that she find a nanny, a wet nurse, for the little child. And the princess agrees and even offers compensation. So Miriam carries her brother to his mother, and for three years, Egypt pays this woman to raise her own son. I think the idea has some merit, don't you? This is a God story, if I've ever heard one. Steve Bond gave me a clip from a book that he had read recently that he shared with a Bible study group written by a rabbi, Maurice Harris, who comments on this part of the story, the princess in his book, No Stranger Among Us. Listen to what he says. As the daughter of the most powerful emperor in the world stands face to face with this abandoned Hebrew baby condemned to die by her father's order, the seed of the overthrow of four centuries of slavery was planted. In the time it took for one young woman's heart to feel a pulse of compassion strong enough to evoke action, the Egyptian gods fell. And the God of Israel entered the world stage as the champion of the oppressed. And get this, and the Pharaoh had no clue that his undoing would be plotted within his own court by his own flesh and blood, that the deliverance was born in the most unlikely of places inside his unnamed daughter's heart. By the way, Jewish tradition later gave the princess a name. You know what they named her? Bethia, which means daughter of Jehovah, because she feared God more than her Pharaoh father. I'm getting an amen from Muller right now. (laughs) Last, Last thing. Is anybody keeping up with the Little League World Series? Y'all have any interest in that whatsoever? No? Okay, forget that. No. No, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, It's baseball in its purest form. I love baseball. I used to be a catcher, and I was in on every play. There's similarities between being a pastor and a catcher. It's baseball in its purest form. We're all pulling for the Nolansville boys. They're in the World Series. They've won two games already. But I saw a highlight just a week ago that I'll never forget. 
There was a team from Texas that was playing a team from Oklahoma. These are 10, 11, 12-year-olds. The winner of this particular game would make it to the World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. The Texas pitcher was having some control problems, and he throws a wild pitch that hits the Oklahoma batter in the head, and you couldn't tell at first, did it, did it hit the helmet or did it hit him directly in the forehead? You couldn't tell at first, but the boy fell down and he's clutching his head, and people are horrified. And after a minute or two, the coaches help him up and they walk him to first base. And meanwhile, the pitcher who threw the ball was absolutely distraught. He couldn't throw anymore. He began to weep and he couldn't go on. The coaches came out on both sides and tried to help him, but he was unresponsive. And the next thing you know, the kid who got his bell rung walks over from first base to the pitcher's mound and hugs the guy and says in a way that you can hear if you watch the video, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay, we can play. When the Oklahoma coach saw this happening, he said, I cried like a baby. I've never seen anything like it, he said, and it occurred to me, if we had a little more of what we see on the mound in the world, the world would be a much better place. Amen. And then the boy was asked after the game by a reporter, why did you do it? And he said, and these are his exact words, I was just trying to spread the love of God. Just trying to be like Jesus, he said. And the ovation in the stands was an affirmation of faith. What I didn't tell you is what that boy's name is. His name is Isaiah. It means God delivers. And he did. And he does. And he will. It's not just a label. That's a vocation. And I imagine, though, what do I know? If you were to go home today and look in the book of names, if you look closely, you might just see in the margins between Shephra and Pua, between Jochebed, Miriam, Bethia, you might see the name Isaiah Jarvis. It's a name worth remembering and imitating. And incidentally, Isaiah's team lost the game but he won our hearts and he won the favor of God. What does your name mean? What can my name mean? Isaiah knew. I hope we know. And that in our knowing, we will actually live it out in reverence to the one who made us, redeemed us, remembers us still, not so that we can make a name for ourselves, but so that we can honor and give glory to the name that is above every name, the name at which one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May it be so in Jesus' name.